I want to talk about this passage from John chapter 2 and chapter 3. I think it it really goes together. Um, And oftentimes we start reading this text at John 3 and miss out the context there at the, um, at the, at the beginning in John chapter 2. Uh, four weeks ago, we celebrated Pentecost, I think in this church as well as ours, back in D.C. And uh, during the season of Pentecost, we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. It's the birthday of the church and the Spirit being poured out upon the church. And so it's a great time for us to learn about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And so today I'd like to speak with you about the pioneering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in opening our hearts up, bringing our hearts to, to awareness of God and a commitment to God, to faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to begin by telling you a, a story. I want to tell you about my friend Tom. Tom grew up in Alabama, and as a young man growing up in Alabama, he went to church, he read his Bible, he even made a profession of faith. But Jesus wasn't the Lord of Tom's life. Hatred was the Lord of Tom's life. Hate consumed him. Hatred especially for blacks and for Jews. And in the 1960s, he joined an organization called the Ku Klux Klan. And he took up their cause with a singular determination. And he rose up through the ranks and became a a, a senior member of the KKK. And he used to drive through racial neighborhoods, through black neighborhoods in the, in the South, and would shoot randomly into houses. His aim was to incite a war, a race war in the South, that would drive white supremacy um, to, to become the law of the land in the United States. And he says, reflecting back on this time, he says, I thought I was a Christian fighting against the communist Jewish conspiracy. He says, I thought I was doing this for God and for country. In 1967, the Klan sent Tom to Meridian, Mississippi to bomb a rabbi's house. What he didn't know was that an informant had also told the FBI what he was going to do. And so when he got to the rabbi's house, there were 10 FBI agents and another dozen sheriff's deputies here and there in the bushes waiting to ambush him. He dropped off his homemade bomb of 29 sticks of dynamite, but it didn't explode. And instead, they opened fire on Tom. They killed his accomplice, a woman who was pregnant. And Tom was shot full of, full of lead. They captured him after an um, exciting chase in the middle of Meridian. They took him to the hospital. Uh, his, I think it was his right arm was just about shot off, and the surgeons reconnected everything, patched him up, and then sent him to Parchman State Prison. And in Parchman, he, he was sentenced to 30 years. He had time to think about his actions, and he started to read. He read... Nietzsche, and he read more KKK literature, and his heart just raged and boiled and churned. And he looked for his opportunity, and the opportunity came, and he and two other friends broke out of Parchman, and they they made a run for it. One of his friends was shot to death, um, and the other two were captured. So Tom went back to Parchman State Prison. This is 1968. 
solitary confinement, a six-by-nine jail cell. And Tom picked up the Bible again. And there he started to read. And this time, for the first time, everything was different. As he read his Bible, he felt as if God was speaking directly to him. He heard the Lord speaking to him. And he came to Matthew 16, 26. And he heard Jesus say to him, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? And for the first time in his life, Tom saw Jesus with the eyes of true faith. The eyes of true faith. And there in his cell, he gave his life to Jesus. He committed to Jesus. He pledged allegiance to Jesus and said, You are my king. He says, I fell on my knees and prayed, and I felt a thousand-pound weight lifted off of me. And from that point on, Tom's life was totally changed, completely changed. Eight years later, he was released from prison, and he went on to become a leader in the racial reconciliation movement and a, an influential Christian. Now, some 45 years after that, there's no question that something happened to Tom in that jail cell 45 years ago. He was transformed. But how did it happen? Was it something that he did? Did he choose to get away from his past of hatred and choose peace instead of violence? Or was this an act of God? We'll find out what Jesus has to say about this as we look at John chapter 3. But before we go any further, let's pray. We praise you, God, for your word. We praise you that it is our compass and it, it gives us a clear sense of who we are and who you are and how to live our lives. We pray that you would open your word for us this morning, that we would see and see clearly, open our eyes to see Jesus and to follow him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to go through this message today under four headings. The first heading is a bit of a side road just to get us oriented to the context of this passage. And so this heading is, I want to talk about believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And that'll be from uh, these last verses of John chapter 2. And then uh, the first four verses of John 3, let's talk about how we can't see and then uh, how the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And finally, I want to invite us to look to Jesus. So those four headings, believing is seeing, we can't see, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, and an invitation to look to Jesus. Let's talk about believing is seeing. You've all heard the expression, seeing is believing, right? Show me the evidence, and then I'll believe. Christianity teaches the opposite. Christianity teaches the exact opposite, that believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Perhaps you'll remember the story of Doubting Thomas. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the very end of John's Gospel. And uh, this is John chapter 20, the story, story of Doubting Thomas. And this actually helps us understand what Jesus says to Nicodemus. On Easter Sunday, <clears throat> the Apostle Thomas missed out on seeing the resurrected Jesus. And when the other t others told him that Jesus had been with them, what did Thomas say? Thomas said... Seeing is believing, right? Thomas said, 
Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So the following Sunday, what happens? Jesus comes back. Jesus is there with them and Thomas is there. And Jesus says, come on, Thomas. Come on, put him right here. Stick it right here. And what does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds saying, Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus is putting things the other way around. He's putting faith first. Instead of seeing is believing, Jesus is saying, Blessed are those who believe first and then see. Do you get it? Do you see? John closes out this story in John chapter 20, verse 30, with a little epilogue. What does he say there? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This was John's goal in writing, that we might encounter Jesus in the scriptures, that we might believe in him, and through believing, we might see the kingdom of God. You got it? Believing is seeing. So why is this important? It lays the foundation for understanding Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and understanding what Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit. If you go back to John chapter 2, where we started reading our gospel lesson this morning, starting in verse 23 of John chapter 2, John says that many who saw Jesus' miraculous signs believed. They believed. But that Jesus didn't believe in them. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. It's the same Greek word. They believed in him. He didn't believe in them. Why is that? Wouldn't Jesus be excited that people were believing in him? Wouldn't he, be, wouldn't he be pleased? Why do you think? Because the belief that they had, Jesus knew, was a superficial belief. It was fleeting. It's not the kind of belief that Jesus requires of those who would follow him, of those who would see the kingdom of God. It's as if John is saying there's faith and then there's faith. There's faith and then there's faith. There's the seeing is believing kind of faith. For those who saw Jesus' miraculous signs and were superficially attracted to him, jumping on the bandwagon, as it were. It's like this sudden explosion of enthusiasm for the goalie, uh, the U.S. soccer team, Tim Howard, right? We've seen his miraculous signs. We've seen his amazing Persian beard. And, well, we just believe in him, right? At least for until college football season begins, right? <laughs> and then we'll forget for another four years, Right? It's a jumping-on-the-bandwagon kind of faith. It's a fleeting faith. It's superficial faith. That's the best faith that we can muster on our own. When we have to do faith on our own strength, that's the best we can do. A seeing-is-believing kind of faith. But there's another kind of faith. It's called believing-is-seeing, and that's the faith that Jesus teaches It only comes as a gift of God. And as we'll learn in a moment, it's what Jesus offers to Nicodemus. It's what he offers to you and me. But first of all, we have to meet Nicodemus. So that was the first point, believing is seeing. Now I want to talk about how we can't see, starting in John 3, verse 1 and following. As I said, Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a believer. 
but as this kind of superficial seeing is believing kind of believer. He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Why does Nicodemus believe? Because he sees, right? And seeing is believing, right? So this is the best faith that Nicodemus can muster. This is the best he can do apart from God. This is not to say that God isn't at work in Nicodemus' life. He is. That's why Nicodemus comes, although he comes at night, right? He, he, he comes at night to meet Jesus, which is emblematic of the spiritual condition of Nicodemus. He's spiritually blind, and he's groping in the dark because he can't see. And he gropes his way and finds Jesus. If he had been able to really see, he would have fallen on his knees and he would have cried out, my Lord and my God. He would have bowed down and and exclaimed, Jesus, you are my king. But instead, what does he say to Jesus? He calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. A teacher come from God. So Nicodemus sees Jesus, but he doesn't see him as the Lord. He sees him as his peer, right? Because this is what Nicodemus is. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Want to stay the same for the rest of your life? Believe in Jesus in this way. Believe in Jesus as your peer. Find a way to bring him down and make him your buddy. If you bring him down to your level, you'll never see him at all. Now, to be clear, Nicodemus probably doesn't know that he's blind. He probably doesn't know how much he needs Jesus. In verse 1, it says that he's a Pharisee. And while that probably has negative connotations for most of us today, it didn't back then. It meant that he was a fine, upstanding citizen. He was a good guy. He was someone people would have liked to have been around. And um, he was clean-cut, patriotic in the best sense. John also describes him as a ruler of the Jews in verse 1, a member of the Sanhedrin probably, probably something like a U.S. senator, the equivalent of that. And in verse 10, he's described as the teacher of Israel, which means he would have had some sort of prominent role in interpreting and, and, uh, and teaching the scriptures to all the people of the nation. And so Nicodemus is a VIP, right? He's, he's a, he's a, uh, a success story in Israel. He's um, one of the brightest lights in the nation, probably the winner of the Rabbi of the Year Award, year after year after year. That's who Nicodemus is. That's the guy who's coming to Jesus. And here's the point. Not only is Nicodemus a religious and political leader, but we're supposed to also see him as a success story, as a self-made man. I think that's how we're supposed to read it. He's risen to the top of society by working hard, by climbing the ladder, by doing the right thing. Since, a kid, since he was a kid, he's been to all the major feasts. He was bar mitzvah at age 13. He memorized the Bible in order to become a rabbi and a Pharisee. He's kissed a lot of babies. He's shaken a lot of hands. He's gone to all the right functions, and now he's at the top. And he's gotten there by his own hard work. Everybody wants to be with the honorable Nicodemus, Sir Nick. St. Nicholas. Everybody wants to be around him. They want to know, what are your views on the Roman occupation? What do you think the kingdom of God means? Teach me something 
about the Ten Commandments. And if there's anyone who sees clearly, it's Nicodemus, right? He's at the very top. And there in the darkness, he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus as his peer, and he comes to him and says, young man, I really like what you've been doing with these miraculous signs. I dig those miraculous signs. Attaboy. But Jesus doesn't play, right? So look at verse 3. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you think you see God's kingdom, but you don't. In fact, you're blind. You can't see. If you truly wish to see me, you must be born again. Now, unfortunately, being born again has also a lot of of connotations associated with it in the modern world. It it conjures for us the worst of, of TV preachers and hucksters and so on. And um, we have to be able to, to remember that this is something Jesus said uh, 2,000 years, more or less, before television. And we have to try to sort out what does Jesus mean by being born again, apart from all of the kind of uh, religious connotations in, in the modern world. Let me tell you what I think Jesus means based on the context when he talks about being born again. I think he means two things that are closely related. He's talking about an internal renewal, internal transformation that comes from an external power. An internal transformation that comes from an external power. And I want to look at each of these for a second. First of all, the internal renewal. And by renewal, I mean transformation because being born again involves a completely new beginning. It's not an upgrade to your operating system. It's not an app that you add or a plug-in. Rather, this is a complete rebuild, a complete reboot, according to new specifications, or more specifically, under new management. Like Tom entering Parchman as a Klansman and leaving as a leader of racial reconciliation. That's the kind of internal transformation that we're talking about. Being born again means no less than the the end of self-rule and the beginning of God's rule in your life. The end of self-rule and the beginning of God's kingship in your life. And that's why Jesus says you can't see God's kingdom unless you're born again, because you have to see God as your king. It would be incredibly hard to start over like this. But imagine how great it would be to start over like this. If you think about your own life and think about the challenges and the difficulties and the sin that piles up, think about how great it would be to start over. Complete internal renewal. That's the first part. The second part is that external power. And um, I guess the best way to to talk about this is to talk about mother, you know, my role here, right? (laughs) Um, How many of you, show of hands, remember when you were born? And remember, mom seems to be straining. Um, This is not going well. I think I'm going to just lend a hand and just help out the old girl a bit. You know, how many of you were there and could help? Remember? When we're born, we can't do a thing, right? When we're born, we're completely helpless, right? And being born again is exactly the same, completely helpless. This is hammered home in verses 3 through 10, where human inability is mentioned in one way or another five 
different times. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. Covered again and again in this passage. We can't. Mom has to do it. (laughs) We can't. So there's good news and there's bad news in this passage, isn't there? The good news is, the good news of being born again is that it means a complete internal overhaul. It means getting rid of all the bad and replacing it with good. And it made my friend Tom one of the kindest and gentlest people I've ever met. Who wouldn't want that? But the bad news is that you can't do it yourself. Being born again requires an act of God, an external power intervening in your life. Tom couldn't do it himself. Neither can I. Neither can you. Our culture passionately believes in self-control, in self-determination, self-help. That's what we all really believe in. We don't believe this doctrine. We don't believe that God is in control. We don't believe that our transformation depends upon an act of God. This is a hard teaching. We believe that we can diet and exercise theoretically and... Um, and can change our weight, change our health, right? We believe that we can practice theoretically and get better on an instrument, right? I say theoretically because we actually don't do these things. Well, some of you guys do it, but most, most of us don't, right? We believe that, you know, you can learn a foreign language if you work hard enough at it. We can make these kinds of changes, but I, I, I would venture to say that all of these things are superficial and they're not heart change. And the work of heart change we find again and again impossible. And so maybe I will try that foreign language after all because the heart change thing is way too hard. Jesus says, you must be born again. And this requires an act of God. For the Honorable Nicodemus, a self-made man just like you and me, it requires an act of God. And Nicodemus finds this dumbfounding. How can this be? How can a man be born when he is old? Must he climb back into mother's womb and come out again? Have you thought about that? No, Nicodemus, and that's gross. But there is another way, and that leads me to a third point, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes in verses 5 through 8. Jesus reiterates in response that when it comes to internal renewal, you can't do it yourself. You must be born again. And the external power for rebirth, Jesus teaches, is the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into this teaching. Verse 5, Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to, hard to tell for sure what Jesus means by the water here. He could be talking about natural birth. He could be saying, you know, uh, when, when the water breaks, you're born the first time. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're reborn. Or he could be talking about water and Spirit as both signs of the second birth. Um, maybe a sign of baptism. Or maybe a sign of cleansing. In any case, it doesn't matter. However we read it, because what Jesus is talking about here, very plain, is that in order to be born again, the Holy Spirit must do it in our lives. We can't do it ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. The Bible teaches that there are many different ways that the Holy Spirit is active in our world and in our lives. The Holy Spirit 
teaching us things, the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, the Holy Spirit giving us words to say at the right time, the Holy Spirit guiding us in prayer, helping us in our weakness, and so on. But regeneration or new birth, that, that thing we're talking about this morning, is the first thing. This is the pioneering work of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Holy Spirit gets started in our lives. And what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus here is kind of Holy Spirit 101, the very beginning of things, an introduction to the Holy Spirit. This is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit begins. Because if our eyes are going to be open to see the kingdom of God, we have to be first born again through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus offers two illustrations here in order for us to understand what he's talking about with the Holy Spirit. First of all, he says in verse 6, like begets like. You see that? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. As human beings, without God's help, the, the best we can do is uh, make more human beings. We're blind to the kingdom of God, and all we can make is more blind people. Our regenerative power is limited. All of creation works this way, right? Dogs can't give birth to cats, right? And we blind, spiritually blind people can't give birth to seeing people. We can't choose to do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So that's the first illustration. The second illustration, Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. He says, um, and by the way, for this you need to know that the, the Greek word for wind, pneuma, and the Hebrew word for wind, ruach, are both uh, words that can be translated into English with a, with a variety of meanings. Wind, breath, or spirit. So there's a little bit of a play on words happening here, regardless of whether Jesus said this in Greek or more likely he said it in in a a Hebrew dialect. Um, There's a play on words. Is he talking about wind or is he talking about spirit? Do you see what I'm saying? So um, here, the second illustration, talking about the spirit. Um, When Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the wind, um, he's, he's talking about how it's invisible Source is unknown, yet extremely powerful, right? Think about a hurricane. Invisible, we don't know where it comes from, and yet incredibly powerful. And if the earthly pneuma or the earthly wind is this way, why not the Holy Spirit, right? It blows where it pleases. You can't control it, so it goes with everyone who is born again. And and I think it's worth pointing out that with both of these illustrations, Um, The Holy Spirit remains in the background. The Holy Spirit is not in the spotlight. Did you notice that? Uh, In in verse 6, where the Holy Spirit is like a parent begetting a child, um, when when a parent has a baby, all the spotlight's on the baby, right? And when the wind blows, the wind is invisible, and you see the force of the wind, right? And this is the... This is... Always, when the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit, it's always this way, that uh, the Holy Spirit remains kind of mysterious. There's a reason why we don't know as much about the Holy Spirit in Christian teaching. That's because the Holy Spirit is always remaining in the background, always pointing to someone or something else. And that someone else is Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us see Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us look to Jesus. That's the the primary work of the Holy Spirit. So this is going to be my last point as we finish out this this passage in verses 9 through 16, looking to Jesus. As we've learned, we're spiritually blind, 
apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit um, enables us to see, but what's frustrating is we can't control the Holy Spirit. This is maddening. We're not in control. Most of us are hardwired to determine our own destinies, to be in control of every detail. And we've been taught that we're in control of our own spirituality. We hear this uh, from academics. We hear this from the TV preachers. Everybody teaches us that we're in control. But Jesus says no. Jesus says exactly the opposite, that the Holy Spirit is in control. And so this leaves Nicodemus dumbfounded once again, verse 9. He says, how is this possible? And he fades back into the darkness, and we don't hear from him again in this story. And Jesus, I think, meets him in this despair. I think we can feel what Nicodemus feels as he falls back into the darkness. All of us can relate to this kind of confusion. If it's not up to me, what can I do? If it's not up to me, I think... I think I'm in real trouble. I think I'm losing control. I'm falling. Oh, no. And that's exactly the way it feels when you're being born. I'm out of control. What's happening? Help. And this is how it has to feel when we hand over control from us to Jesus. This is how it feels when we hand over control of our lives to the Lord. It's scary, but it's necessary because we can't see. We can't save ourselves. We need someone who can. And who can? Only Jesus can. When the Spirit begins a new work in us, the first thing he does is he enables us to see Jesus and to see Jesus on the cross. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. This is the first glimpse of daylight when we're born again is to see Jesus on the cross. Jesus doesn't explain this all in detail to Nicodemus because the whole uh, passion of Christ is yet to come in John's gospel. This is early on. So what does Jesus do? He instead gives a picture, an Old Testament picture, of what's going to happen to him in the crucifixion. So in verses 14 to 16, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus is talking about the Old Testament lesson that we heard this morning, right? From Numbers chapter 21. And in that lesson, serpents or snakes are are, um, killing the people of God, savagely attacking them. And so God tells Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent and then to lift it up. And then the people look to that bronze image and are saved. Seems pretty weird, doesn't it? It's actually not as weird as it first sounds. Because in all of Old Testament religion, there's always been this practice of taking an animal, of laying your hands on it, identifying it with yourself, identifying it with your own despair and sin transferring that to the animal and then sort of lifting that animal up and having that animal die in your place, right? That was the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And they would look to a lamb, for example, dying and being sacrificed as a substitute for themselves, the death of a sacrificial lamb instead of the death of the sinner, right? 
And they were doing something quite similar with the bronze serpent. As one old Puritan commentator puts it, that which cured was shaped in the likeness of that which wounded. That which cured was shaped in the likeness of that which wounded. So also God sent his only son, Jesus, to put on human flesh, to look as one of us and live as one of us. He takes on our likeness, and then in his death, he took on our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin on our behalf. He was made sin on our behalf. He was lifted up as a sacrifice in our stead. He suffered God's judgment against our sin in his body. Now, we can't save ourselves, right? But whenever we look to him, whoever looks to him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So which is it? Are we blind or can we see? If we're blind, how can we see Jesus? Again, this is the first work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to see in the darkness the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up and suffering in our place. In verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, namely the Son of Man. We can't see God's kingdom because we haven't been there. But Jesus has. And he's our emissary. He's, he's the go-between, the mediator, the interpreter, the guide. He's been there. And because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see him, we can then see the kingdom of God. And that's what being born again is all about. Now, what Jesus is saying here, it's important to note, is that he's saying he's the only one. He's the only way. No other religion will open these doors. No other religion will open our eyes. And no other path will lead to the top of the mountain. Jesus is the only way. So it's exclusive. Do you hear that? But this is exclusivity like no other exclusivity. Because this is an exclusivity that's rooted in love. And it excludes no one. It has a universal reach. Verse 16, again, what's driving this story is that God so loved the world that he extends this exclusive offer to everyone in the entire world. Because of God's love, the way of the cross is open to every tribe and tongue, people and nation, to each person here. So if you're here and you've never experienced this kind of radical internal transformation, this love is for you. This love is for you. All you have to do is look up and see Jesus on the cross, see him there as your Savior, see him as your substitute. And the Holy Spirit will take control of your life and will begin this radical transformation in you to wash away all of the pain and the guilt and the hatred and to replace it with life. The Holy Spirit gave new life to my friend Tom in that jail cell. He'll give new life to you. Incidentally, if you're ever wondering what happened to Nicodemus in this story, he, he pops back up again a couple times later in the gospel. And we can't know for sure what's going on with him, um, but it very much looks like the Holy Spirit has done a miraculous work of transformation in him as well. Let me say finally, 
If you keep reading this story, reading it all the way through the end of John and keep reading into Acts and all the rest of the New Testament, what you're going to find is that the Holy Spirit is at work again and again and again in bringing people to faith. Sometimes we think about the the power, the control of the Holy Spirit and think, wow, this you know, this may only happen randomly, only ha- the wind blows where it pleases, um, once in a lifetime kind of thing. But actually, the Holy Spirit is on the move in many places with many people at the same time, all the time, for the past 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit has been at work drawing people to see Jesus. People like the Apostle Paul, who was persecuting Christians. And then the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see Jesus as Lord. I find this so encouraging. Um, Watch for it as you read the scriptures. Because what this means is that the Spirit can do it. <laughs> and the Spirit does it. We don't have the power to do it. If, 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 if becoming born again depended upon me, no one would be born again. But the Holy Spirit is powerful. And so we can hand over the reins, not only of our own lives to the Spirit, but we can also hand over control of what happens to our loved ones, to our friends and neighbors to the Holy Spirit. It's such a more trustworthy and reliable system, isn't it? (laughs) To trust God with those whom we love. With God's Holy Spirit at work, there's, there's hope for anyone and everyone in the world, whether the Apostle Paul, whether my friend Tom, whether uh, our neighbors and loved ones. So this frees us up to point people to the Lord and cry out to him on their behalf. That's a word about the Spirit who gives new life. I want to pray, and then I'll invite you to stand with me and confess our faith according to the words of the Nicene Creed. Let's pray.